let me let me pray for us to get started, and then um, and then we can get going. Father, you're good. Uh, God, we're thankful for uh, the call you've given us as believers to uh, take your gospel uh, to the ends of the work, ends of the earth. God, we thank you for this class, the opportunity to kind of dig into some of the aspects of what that could look like. Uh, specifically today, God, we lift up and uh, think about this idea of taking the gospel, doing missions uh, in countries with restricted access. Uh, so God, I pray that you would use our time today to glorify you, God, and ultimately uh, encourage us, equip us to doing uh, the work that you set out before us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. So, the missionary of Highlight today is C.T. Studd. I don't think we've done him yet. Is that fair? You guys heard of C.T. Studd? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, let, me give you a little, let me give you a little bit of C.T.'s story. Actually, I want to pull up. I, I, while I was, I heard about C.T. Studd probably 17 years ago. Probably most profound impact in my life was his story. Like that, hearing that story in the season I was in was, was really impactful to me, but as I was kind of looking back over some of uh, the things about C.T. Stud, I pulled out some names of other folks that were influential in his life or that he influenced or was involved in in some way. It's kind of crazy to think about the shoulders he rubbed with. Has that had done And rubbing shoulders with these people. So C.T. Stud grew up in a really, really wealthy family. His dad, um, was a kind of trader, uh, not a trader like bad guy, but like he traded goods. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> specifically, I think it was like indigo. And so he did business back and forth from uh, the UK, Britain, England, uh, and India. And so he made a lot of money doing that. Uh, CT grew up in that household with like three brothers and a couple sisters, big family. <laughs> um, but they were big into cricket. Um, so much so that like, CT would spend hours and hours every day looking in the mirror, practicing his swing, and making sure it was absolutely perfect. Uh, he just desired to be good at cricket, and he was really, really good at cricket. I'll get back to that. Um, but like later in his dad's life, he was influenced um, by the kind of, uh, what's the right word, revival work of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey. Uh, D.L. You guys know, well, I think we may even talk to him about him at this point. Ira was, was kind of his right-hand man that went with him in these events. Um, but but uh, C.T. Studd's dad um, was influenced by that, became a believer, and was radically changed as a part of that. And so he made it a practice of his own to just randomly walk into his son's rooms and be like, hey, what are you going to do with Jesus? And... Uh, you know, try to get them to convert to Christianity, um, or at least take it seriously. And so, because of how influential he was, he often had pastors and different folks at his house, and it wasn't really until uh, C.T. was older um, that he was at home, and a pastor was at the house, and came in and really started pressing C.T. In, in, into thinking, hey, what are you going to do with this Jesus guy? And C.T. ultimately became a believer in that moment, um, and really believes he was converted then. Um, and, um, but really for the next six years, kept pursuing cricket and pursued it to a degree of like being kind of known as the best cricketer of all time. Um, and what was crazy is when you think about his whole story, um, while he was in college, he was going to school at Cambridge, playing cricket on one of the best teams of all time. 
and his brother falls ill. His, he had two brothers that played with him. And it was that moment that like kind of slapped him in the face and he thought, what am I doing? Like, life is more precious than this. And there are folks uh, going to hell because they don't know about the Jesus I know about. And so um, he kind of made a decision um, <clears throat> to quit pursuing cricket and to pursue the ends of the earth. Um, kind of as a result of his brother saying, it was like this contemplative scenario. Um, turns out that um, at the time, Hudson Taylor ended up being in a Bible study with, no, CT study, ended up being in a Bible study with Hudson Taylor, um, which is a crazy thing to think about. And Hudson Taylor, as a part of that, kind of mobilized these guys who were known at the time as the Cambridge Seven, these high-profile athletes at Cambridge, one of which was CT Stud. He said, you guys should come to China with, with me, and we can do this thing. And at the time, we'll talk about Hudson Taylor next week, um, was doing China Inland Mission, which was this kind of revolutionary way of thinking about missions. And so he was there. He mobilized these guys. And so um, you can imagine the scenario around this of kind of the top athletes at Cambridge, all destined to be the biggest and best at whatever they wanted to be, said, ah, we're giving it all up um, to go to the ends of the earth. And um, in fact, in this time, like, I, I doubt this is how it happened, but like ESPN comes and like does an interview on CT Sutton and says like, hey dude, you're like the best ever. What are you doing? Why are you giving this up? Um, I'm sure they had a microphone at the time too. Mm-hmm. And they, he, said, he said, you know what? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And just this idea of who cares? Like there's something bigger and better to chase after here um, than all the earthly possessions that make it. In fact, at one point he said, I've had all that. What, what does it matter? Um, this is even better than all of those things, uh, winning the loss to Christ. And so um, for the next month, uh, the Cambridge Seven, before kind of setting off to China, went about this work of kind of mobilizing as many people as they possibly could to the work. Um, and it was greatly impactful. Um, in fact, those who were influenced with, with that process were one, Robert Wilder, um, John Mott. If you guys are familiar with the student volunteer movement, this is kind of precursor to all that. Those guys were influenced by this paper that came out, this writing, the story of what CT Stud and these guys were doing. And so all these things happened as a result of uh, CT Stud making this decision and his team to, to follow Christ to the ends of the earth. Um, and so uh, CT Stud went overseas. They ended up in China. And just as kind of the short term impact of that was, they left in 1885. By 1890, this uh, China Inland Mission had doubled in size from like 80 something to 160 something uh, in terms of the number of workers that were there. And then uh, by the time 1900 rolled around, they had almost hit like 500 units on the field or 800 units on the field, something crazy. Um, And this is all a result of this kind of paper circulating and then mobilizing folks in England to the ends of the earth. Uh, While he was there, C.T. Stubb met his wife. Um, They ended up having four daughters. I think they had two sons as well, but they ended up passing away in infancy. and ended up being in, uh, in China for, I think, 15 years. Um, and then came back to England and then ended up in southern India with Amy Carmichael. I don't know, like, there's no documentation that they actually, like, met one another, but they were in the same place doing the same stuff. 
CT was a pastor and kind of doing different things than like Frontiers mission stuff, but he was definitely pastoring in, in South India. And by 1906, had made his way back to England. Um, I'm not actually sure what would have brought him back, but by 1910, um, he, he encountered uh, somebody on his travels back to England who really like informed him of what was going on in Africa and his heart exploded for Africa. He's like, I've got to go there. And so he went. And so from 1910 to 1931, I think those were the years, um, he was in Africa. And so one thing I want to call out is that, um, you know, when uh, Cole and Gaddy and I started talking about this class, we were kind of committed to of making this a point, like let's talk about some missionaries of the past, the good and the bad. And so this is where I bring in maybe some of the bad. From 1910 to his death in 1931, C.T. Stead saw his wife only one time. Um, and so we, we see this a lot, especially with missionaries, but specifically kind of in this era where their zeal for the ends of the earth kind of made them make some compromises on the other end of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And, um, you know, C.T., not only is he called to the ends of the earth, but he's also called to uh, love his wife as Christ loved the church. And so I don't know the, soul, the whole circumstance around that, but I think it's easy to say it's pretty unhealthy uh, how that relationship went for the past, this last 20 years or so. Um, I say that his wife was very uh, involved in his work in, in Africa from England. So she was help, helping to do, to kind of manage the um, headquarters in London. Um, but ultimately she wasn't there with him and, so, and he wasn't there with his kids. Uh, his, one of his daughters and son-in-law ended up coming to Africa and working with him. In fact, the VCT stud kind of biography was written by his son-in-law. Um, pretty cool. So um, another quote that CT stud, just to kind of speak to his zeal, he, he at one point said, um, you know, some folks want to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue mission a yard from hell. Like he was just bent towards, I'm going to be at the front lines as much as I can. I think that, you know, a lot of it played back to in ways he spoke, uh, kind of went back to his years as a cricketer and just being uh, really dedicated to the things he's doing. Um, the quote I, I left on here was one that I actually had never read before. Um, what I thought was, was interesting. Um, oh, I didn't mention something, and so this will be a call out to that. Uh, he said, funds are low again, hallelujah. That means God trusts us and is willing to leave his reputation in our hands. Um, when when C.T. Studd's dad passed away, he passed away before he and his wife actually got married, and uh, he was given what would today be about, be about $25 million dollars. Uh, in inheritance, CT alone was, and CT gave away all of it with exception to a dowry, and uh, he kept a dowry so that he could give a gift to his bride when he eventually got married, and when he proposed to his wife and said, "Hey, here's here's this dowry," she said, "It feels like we should start with a clean slate. We need to give that away too," and so they, he gave away literally twenty five million dollars worth of his his only possessions, and this is kind of how he lived. Uh, Hudson Taylor had a similar philosophy about ministry and raising support and just trusting in God's provision. Um, and so you can kind of see that encapsulated in this quote. But anyway, C.T. Uh, was definitely a stud and very influential. Um, rubbed shoulders with a lot of the greats uh, in terms of who we hold up as missionaries from past years. Um, 
And so plenty of good things to kind of pull from his life, but definitely some things to caution as well. So um, I think when you think about missions work in general, uh, we, you can very easily get into ditches on things, uh, and that's zealousness. Zealous, how do you say that? Zeal. Zeal? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it is one of those things. Zealousness. Zealousness. When he first went out to... He and the seven were so zealous, they thought they wouldn't have to learn the language. Oh, yeah. They would get to the country and just speak in tongues. Pray. Yeah. Pray, yeah, yeah. speak, pray in tongues so the people in Hudson Taylor rebuked him. It was like, you need to learn the language. <laughs> like, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually like out, going, out to, going out to a village and like weary of language learning and just put their books aside and started praying that God would give them the language. And Hudson was just in the background going, He's like, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. You guys are idiots. <laughs> uh, they they learned quickly. Um, yeah. All right. Let's jump into the content, and and I'll tell you guys. Like, I I really this is this content is such that um, you really kind of have to build some convictions here, and so um, I, I want to have conversations around this and really kind of pick at some ideas with you. So what we're talking about today is this idea of kind of closed countries. And if you've been around kind of this mission conversation for a while, you've probably heard the term closed country. Um, but I think today we don't use that word exactly. Uh, there's not really a country that's closed as much as it is limited in access or restricted in access, uh, meaning that um, it's, it's harder or maybe nearly impossible for outsiders specifically missionaries, to come in and have like lawful access to the country, specifically for um, evangelical, evangelical purposes. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that the term is being used today, closed country, but definitely using terms like restricted access, limited access, um, or creative access, meaning these are places where we have to get in with other legitimate means. So, um, when you think about that, like I, I was curious, I was like, well, how many, how many closed countries are there? How many restricted access countries are there? As it turns out, people don't really keep record of this. They don't, you shouldn't. One, because they, it evolves so often, but two, putting a list of the, of the countries that are restricted on your kind of missions organization website kind of goes, hey, what are you guys doing? Why do you have my country's name on your website? Uh, so people don't really keep that on their site. Um, but let's look at the, let's look at the, uh, Let's look at the definition. Somebody want to read it? <clears throat> a country where the government's official policies or unofficial practices or cultural norms prevent the free and open presentation of the gospel without fear of serious reprisal. Most often, it means a nation whose government will not grant visas to foreigners who intend to enter the country for the sole purpose of religious work, where churches are illegal or severely regulated where open religious work may result in expulsion from the country and or where conversion from a majority religion to Christianity is form formally illegal or informally the cause of stiff persecution. It's a mouthful. Yeah, it means you can't get in. But what are, some, what are some big highlights? When you're looking at that, what are some highlights or things that stick out to you? Government restriction. Stiff persecution. Yeah. Where conversion is illegal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No churches. 
Yeah. So there, um, I'll use India a lot this week and next week as examples for things. Uh, it's not definitely it's not the only way these things happen, but it's an example of how the way these things happen. So India is a restricted access country. Um, when we went to India, we we when we started, we were fortunate enough to be able to have a ten-year tourist visa. Who in the world is a tourist for ten years in any country? We were. Um, uh, but by the time we got about a year in, that visa type was getting locked down. And so we had to find another means for visa in the country. And so we enrolled as students and were students, right? So those were official means of being in the country. Um, but as a, uh, like someone who's Indian, uh, people had kind of cultural backgrounds as one thing or another. You guys know that Thomas's uh, the Apostle Thomas did his missionary work in India. There's been a lot of missionary work over the years there. So there's this kind of cultural uh, group of Christians in India that were born into it um, as Christians, um, cultural Christianity. And so those folks kind of carry the idea of, oh, you're Christians and this is how you Christians live. Um, as, as like opposed to, oh, you're Hindu and so this is how you live or, oh, you're uh, Muslim and so this is how you live. Those are cultural identities and uh, in some places within India it came with an identification card. Um, in, in order to have, uh, to switch your ID card from uh, say Hindu to Christianity took a great deal of work and persecution along the way. It kind of earmarked you to the government of, oh this person has converted. Um, and so that's the type of stuff that closed countries do to kind of keep a lockdown on this sort of thing. A lot of times it's around more around Western influence than anything else, but we'll talk about that next week. So big picture is there are places in the world that just aren't open to folks coming and sharing the gospel. They aren't open to mission work. They aren't open to uh, churches doing their thing within a country. Um, and so they try as best they can to keep them out. Um, I don't know if I said this, if, like ultimately I was leading to it, but there are about 60 or so countries like that in the world. Um, later on, we'll talk more about that, but they're the countries you can imagine, right? They're the countries that uh, are primarily Islamic, primarily, uh, they have some of the largest populations in the world, um, and so, uh, and they're largely within the 1040 window. And so, um, a lot of the countries that, uh, you know, kind of targeted for the gospel are kind of fit in this space of, closed or restricted. Okay, so as we dig into this, there's several things we should talk about. The first we should talk about, though, is uh, are there biblical uh, considerations for this thing? And the answer is yes, there are biblical considerations, and we should consider them. So let's look at them. The first question, the first thing to consider is, do we have an obligation to respect the authority and policies of such governments, such governments being ones that are restricting access. So if you will, let's turn to Romans 13, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7, if somebody wants to read that. <clears throat> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instructed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, tending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Feels kind of heavy, right? Um, so what are some, let's look at this section a little bit and pull out some things that, um, that's, that stand out or things that we should, we should highlight. So let's start at the top and, and kind of work our way down. Uh, what are some things that stand out? The government has authority in order to be in submission to them. Yeah. God yeah. established that authority. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the only reason they have authority is because it's been given to them by God. Yeah. And what, what does it say in verse 2? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resi- resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So it's not just that. There's a, there's a heavy weight on that for us as believers. Like, yeah, they've been given authority uh, by God to establish kind of the governance of us, and we're held to that. I mean, that's ultimately what verse 2 is saying. Um, what else? Kind of keep carrying on here. Verse 3, say anything important? Governments are to punish the wicked and to do good for the good. Yeah. And in verse 4, too, yeah. is God's servant for your good? Yeah, so kind of circling back, exactly. And then circling back to that in verse 5, it's like, so we should be subject to that. Um, and then um, 6 and 7 kind of round up this idea of like, um, for who it's due, give it to them. Right, whether that be Caesar or whoever else, um, President of the United States or some closed country. Uh, yeah, I think the way that this could be summed up would be because God has ordained government, authority for our good, we must be subject to the government. Uh, God has created this and established this thing for our good, and we need to be subject to it. Um, so, but this does kind of elevate some questions. And I'm going I'm to read a scenario to you in a second for us to think about. Uh, big picture is, um, is that God has put these things in place, these governances, and they're a good thing, ultimately. Um, but in the next questions, B and C, B is, are there limits to such God-given authority? And what if earthly governments contradict God? Okay, so let me read this scenario. And before I even read it to you, I don't know that there's a good answer. But this is sort of the point of the whole conversation, right? So, so think back. Imagine that you're living in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, if you don't know, this is when Adolf Hitler came to power. And so you uh, watch with just horror as a believer uh, as he begins, as Hitler begins, systematically 
exterminating Jews, right? Your friends, your neighbors, um, some of your favorite folks, the folks you did business with, the folks you did life with, the folks your kids went to school with, um, they were ultimately being pulled out of their houses and herded off to execution camps, right? So some of them you would never, ever see again, much less alive. Um, and so uh, here you are under this governing authority of Adolf Hitler in the country. Um, but then, as you're there, as you're experiencing these things, you hear about a plot to assassinate Hitler, and you're invited to join the conspiracy. If Hitler could be killed, it could conceivably save the lives of millions of Jews. But you are aware of Romans 13, the, the chapter we just read, um, which commands you to be subject to the governing authorities. What should you do? Right? This is a tough question. Um, because what's right by the lives of those people and what's right by the governing authority uh, that you're under? So let's look at these questions a little bit more distinctly. Are there limits to such God-given authority? And I don't know that we're going to find a straight answer, just to be clear. Um, I think you could very easily say yes. <laughs> uh, but like how that plays out very practically is, is tough, right? Um, so let's look at Matthew 22. Read, read it. Somebody else want to read it? Kelly, you have a great reading voice, so if you want to read, you can. But. Fifteen through twenty-two. That's right. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, "Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances." Tell us then. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So what's going on here? <clears throat> trying to trick Jesus. Who? The Pharisees. Okay. And what are they, getting, what are they trying to trick him into saying? Or, or what's the point of their trickery? It's kind of a, you can't win a, a lose-lose situation. Either you're saying... Yes, pay taxes to the Romans who are occupating the Jews and subjecting them under persecution uh, or oppressing them oppression. Or he's telling the, what's the opposite of that? Um, yeah, don't pay your taxes and then the Romans will. Let the Jews be Jews. We govern ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's, all, that's what the Pharisees are trying to get them to say. Yeah, so what, is, what does Jesus do? What does he say? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, first, though, like, I thought this was kind of funny, right? So, uh, they asked him the question, Jesus says, 
well, like, show me the coin. <laughs> Who's on the coin? And he knew, because he's God, but also because he lived in the community and culture, he knew it was on the coin. It'd be like saying, who's on the $1 bill? Oh, that, that's George. You know, that's a president who's on our, our dollars. Um, and they knew, too. They didn't have to show him a coin. But his point was, in making this final statement, let me see it so I can, I can give you an object lesson, ultimately. But it's kind of funny that he was like, show me the coin. Let's see who, let's see who we, we owe it to. And what he says is, in verse... 21, um, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And this is kind of a crucial and here. That comma means a lot. And to God, the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were marveled, they left him and him and went away. There's nothing to combat there, right? So um, it's in this scenario, Jesus kind of shrugs off this false objection to go, why are we even talking about this? You're just trying to, you're trying to catch me in something, but smarter than that. Um, and, and, he's, and he basically says, hey, you can do both. You can honor the requirements of a secular government without embracing all that it stands for, right? I don't think Jesus would have stood for the oppression of the Jews, right? Um, but at the same time, he knew who was in governance over them, and that was God-ordained. You can think that back over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, and God ordained uh, governance over his people by ruling parties that were not beneficial to them, and he still prevailed over and over and over again. You think about Moses, you think about Joseph, you think about David, you think about all these stories where God took these governing bodies over his people and still used it for the benefit of his, his kingdom and his good, his glory ultimately. Um, so the statement, though, is kind of interesting when you think about it. Um, he ultimately says, we owe Caesar that which bears the image of Caesar. And we owe God that which bears the image of God. Who, who bears the image of God? Humanity. We do. Yeah, we were made in his likeness, in his image. We looked at that uh, week two, I think. Um, we are made in his image. And so um, that's kind of the, the teeter, right? So, um, and which one... Which, which authority rules who there in that scenario, right? So uh, Caesar may be ruling over the Jews, but God's ruling over Caesar ultimately. And so that's kind of the crux of, of how do we do this. So um, yes, there are limits to God-given authority. Think back to the Hitler conversation. What does that look like, though, is the, is the question. Um, and I think we saw that Jesus was ultimately submissive to these things. And God used... Uh, Joseph in his scenario in submission to his kind of situation to ultimately glorify him. And so we see an example throughout scripture um, where humanity is living under submission to a governing body regardless of, of kind of uh, the status of it, the situation within it. All right, let's look at the last one and um, kind of help round this out a little bit. What if earthly governments contradict God? Um, and we'll turn to Acts uh, 4. 13 through 20. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that 
a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have... We cannot speak but... Sorry, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I, I love, this is, I love verse 13 uh, as a standalone. Um, it's been, uh, yeah, it's one of those verses in my life that I'm like uh, questioned or like tried to pin to myself, right? Uh, largely un- uneducated man. Um, but hopefully, prayerfully, people see that I've been with Jesus. Um, not in the same essence that they were with Jesus, because they were, like, tangibly with Jesus, practically with Jesus, um, but that I, that I have spent time with Jesus. And so I love kind of where this starts, because they're looking at those guys going, hey, these guys didn't make it past, like, eighth grade education or whatever, wherever they tap out in the Jewish structure. Um, but they got something going. Right. And then um, I think the kind of magic happens later down here. Um, and to kind of get at kind of the, the question, what if earthly governments contradict God? Um, in verse 16, they say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak. Warn them to speak no more to anyone in in his name. In this name, so call them, try to charge them, um, and <clears throat> ultimately, uh, Peter and John were like, "Look, a couple things. Like, we can't not do this. Uh, one, we we stake allegiance to our God." And two, this is too good not to tell. Like, we got to keep talking about this. That being said, if you need to judge us, judge us. Um, and when they went through the whole process, they're like, we can't really find any grounds of, of judging them. So they let them go. Um, and so you see Peter and John's posture there is, no, we've been called to this thing. We are charged with this. And not only that, like, it's too good not to talk about. So we're going to keep doing it. Um, because ultimately we're under God's authority, but if you need to judge us for it, we get it. We're okay. We're okay with it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we're put yourself back through as many scenarios as you want to. Uh, if you want to think about that 1930s example, great. But point is, is like in specifically in restricted access countries, there are things that you just have to consider. Um, how are we going to go about the work? What is it going to look like? Uh, under whose authority am I going to be for all these things? And so throughout the rest of kind of this morning, we'll talk about uh, other things, like what does it look like to gain access and all those things, um, to kind of be in right standing from a judgment perspective. Um, so let's, let's jump into that. 
Section two, I don't think is worth just totally jumping over, but I will say um, it's kind of what the class is for. Uh, I think we could just say this, instead of saying motivations for missions in a restricted access country, we could just say motivations for missions. And our whole class has kind of been dedicated to that thing. Um, and so uh, I think if, if we just want to kind of walk through here, um, I think under this first one, hatred for God does not revoke the Great Commission. It's worth kind of going back and saying, well, what is the Great Commission? What are we actually called to? You guys remember? Make disciples of all nations. Right. Teaching them to obey all that God's commanded. Yeah. So how, how then did we define missions? You guys remember? I actually brought my, uh, my notes from the first day, February 13th. You guys remember that day? Time flies. It does fly. That's crazy. Um, what was the, you guys remember the definition we, we gave for missions um, that first week? Missions is evangelism that crosses linguistic and cultural barriers to make disciples in the context of a local church. Really, really close. Missions is evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries Sees disciples made and then gathered into churches. Yeah, super good. Nailed it. So, this kind of bullet is, does a country being restricted or does a country having limited access or, or not wanting you there, does that kind of negate the Great Commission? Does it negate the purpose of missions? No, not at all. Um, it definitely does not revoke it either. Um, it may just make it harder to get there, but we'll talk about some things that you may not may not think about as potential for access to those countries. Um, all right, so the privilege of building a new foundation, point number two. Uh, this is one I was actually texting Gaddy about last night um, in thinking about, you know, what is this really like? Um, and so the benefit of uh, kind of working within a restricted access country is that there's not likely a lot of work that's been done there. And so, like when we were in India, a lot of the things that we were doing, although it is a restricted access country, the British once ruled there. Uh, and their impact on, on life in India, and specifically around these ideas of conversion uh, and like contextual stuff, uh, was pretty negative. And so... Almost a vaccine against the gospel. 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... We had to do work to kind of undo some of those thought processes and things that, that came with Christianity. Not to mention, I think a lot of the world kind of sees Christianity through Western eyes anyway and goes, oh, Madonna, you guys know the Madonna I'm talking about. She wears a cross necklace. She must be Christian. We don't want that. Um, but, uh, you know, in restricted access country, even when that, are, that have access to the outside world, uh, they have, tend to have less of an influence um, and so uh, you're not having to undo work that's been done in the past. And so it's kind of a fresh start in terms of things. Now, there are other, are other boundaries that come with that. And so there's plenty to consider. Um, but that could be a motivation uh, to go into a restricted access country. Um, in that, Gary, I was thinking about uh, your friends uh, doing tribal work. Um, definitely not an easy situation, uh, but they're getting a kind of start from the ground up in all things. Um, what's the name of the tribe that they're in? Wantakia. Wantakia. I always want to start it with 
went to like go down and then up instead of went to Kia. Anyway, uh, so I always get it wrong. Um, yeah, but you know they kind of went in with a totally fresh groundwork, and there's a lot of labor that went into that. Um, and but they weren't having to undo things that had already been done. All right, strategic need. Just on that, you know, just that idea of, I mean, the, the building on a new foundation is one it's part of the Great Commission. Paul talks about not building on another's foundation. Yeah. Um, but then we were even just reminiscing on, on like, the letter that uh, Adoniram Judson had written to Anne's father. Um, and in that, like, he basically says, like, are you willing to let her go? to see her no more in this life, to suffer degradation and persecution and like all these terrible things so that you might see her again in glory with a crown of glory surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that, that came to faith because of her work. And so just that, just that vision too of just recognizing like the honor and the privilege of yeah. that. For sure. Just being able to see a people group that otherwise wouldn't be represented. Yeah, so I actually, I pull this out, I'll read it too. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise? which shall resound to her Savior from heaven, heathen saved, uh, through her means from eternal woe and despair. Yeah. Um, so awesome. So good. What a letter, too. <laughs> Are you good to never see your daughter again? By the way, that's kind of how he starts off the letter. All right, uh, point C. I know we're blowing through these. I wanna, I'll make sure we have time to pray, and we're almost we're running, running lean. Um, strategic need. Um, like I said a second ago, uh, these countries fit kind of within the window of the world's most lost, right? Um, as far as to the ends of the earth, earth goes, um, these countries, these areas are the most populated, they're the most lost. Uh, they're home to Islam, some of the fastest growing, like one of the world's fastest growing religions. I mean, they are very strategic in terms of, um, where we should kind of focus gospel efforts, um, these restricted access countries. Uh, and then finally, uh, the fourth point there is to glorify God. Uh, if you guys remember from, I think, that first week, one of our kind of lines said, uh, the, the global praise of God, uh, what is it? The global praise of God's glory is the final goal of missions, right? And so, um, all of this is to that end, and these countries definitely are strategic in that purpose. So, um, all right. So, what are some other practical considerations? And so, we'll let's kind of talk through each one of these really briefly, and then our conversation on that final point, creative access, will help fill in some of the gaps on that. Um, so, things to consider uh, practically when thinking about doing work in a restricted access country is safety. Um, in most cases, evangelicals, people uh, of, uh, who are uh, intentionally taking the gospel into those countries, by definition, are not wanted there. 
And so depending on the nature of that country, that could be a really unsafe thing, unsafe place to be. Not to mention that a lot of these countries fit within an area of the world that are kind of hostile towards one another, neighboring countries or people groups or whatever. And so there's just some general safety concerns too. Like these areas of the world are just dangerous, regardless of who you are <coughs> and what intents you have. Um, I had a buddy who was in Afghanistan when all of that stuff happened recently. And so he had to like climb over a fence and catch a plane as it was leaving the runway and like get out of the country. Uh, because of all that was going on there. It's a pretty intense situation to be in. And um, it's, it's sorrowful, right? It's like, man, I don't want to, I love this place. I've developed relationships and family here and had to leave, right? So uh, that kind of speaks to the final point, which is uh, perseverance amidst isolation. Um, but really quickly, another thing, uh, practical consideration is if you're not allowed in as a missionary, how are you going to get in? <laughs> what is... What does this platform mentality look like? How do you get into the country? Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about a lot of those. Um, even though a country uh, is kind of listed as restricted or closed, doesn't mean the gospel can't get there. Uh, it can actually get there a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, specifically, if you're going to live within a country, you have to think about how you're going to get there. Um, one practical way that I thought about getting there. Um, when we were living in India, the country was shutting down and we had friends who worked for the U.S. Embassy and I was like, brilliant. <laughs> like, they are officially there with the government. Like, they can't not be there. They're intended to be there. Um, and we had some friends who were living very intentionally as kind of government officials representing the U.S., ambassadors to the U of the U.S. Um, not to mention they had a pretty great setup. So uh, that's one platform you could have. I think that you two would be the only ones eligible for actually doing that because you have to start that process at a relatively young age. Like, we're already out of that game. We couldn't join if we wanted to. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, uh, evangelism is another practical <coughs> thing to consider. What does that look like? How do you do it? Um, we've talked about some of that stuff across the class, but you have to practically think about those things. Um, specifically in this world of being under the judgment of the, your kind of ruling authority, um, and knowing what you're called to do and whose ultimate authority you're under. Like, it's too good not to share, but how does that actually happen? Um, so, um, and then this last one, perseverance among isolation. I think just a note there that uh, it can be tough. I mean, you may be one of very few people there doing work. Uh, you may be uh, there for a long time doing work without any sort of um, kind of fruit or any sort of like, actual connection to folks. And so um, even though some of these countries are closed to kind of uh, missional influence, it doesn't mean they're closed to foreigners always. So something to consider here on this one is um, it's really important for us as a church or as a short-term kind of group, and Gaddy's done this several times, is just to go encourage folks, love on them, bring them things. Um, it's also encouraging just to get an email. Um, uh, I always want to say the wrong name. Miles uh, has mentioned that several times. Hey, send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Um, so uh, that we can be assistance in that. If we're, ta if we're walking away from today's class with some really practical ways we can be involved, this is definitely one of them. How can we help? I mean, encouragement to this end of like making sure someone doesn't feel isolated because um, it definitely happens. Um, okay. Um, so let's move into this section again, and we'll kind of hit some of these 
again, these, these last four points, and this creative access conversation. Um, and specifically, uh, like I want to call out technology as a part of this. Um, technology is an incredible thing that has happened over the years uh, and continues to happen. It's not cyclical. It, it like continues pushing forward. Uh, we're not going back to the 8-track. I can assure you that's not going to happen. Um, we're going to keep pushing forward through this digital age and into something else that we don't know about yet. Um, but we're not circling back. We might circle back on a tire from those decades, but not the technology, I'm sure. I guess we did come back on the record, uh, the 45. But that's more nostalgia than anything else, right? So the um, point is, is that technology keeps advancing, and that's a part of creative access. And so as an example, um, the printing press was created like 600 years ago. Um, and the printing press had a profound impact on the gospel going to the ends of the earth, the, the God's word specifically going to the ends of the earth. I was telling Gaddy, I was, he called me as I was walking up, we passed each other, and I was actually looking up a stat because I was curious, did you guys know that there's like between five and seven billion copies of the Bible in distribution somewhere? Um, it's, got, it's got the Guinness record for that, like number of copies of a book. Um, and that, I mean, that was like incredibly like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like pressed for, multiplied by the printing press. Um, it was standardized like a thousand years before that in terms of these are the things that we're going to put in the document that we call the Bible. Um, it was standardized like a thousand years before the printing press, but the printing <coughs> press allowed that production to happen so much faster. And so just getting the Gospels into there really practically like, uh, was helped by, the, by some sort of technology. Um, you think about that today and the tools we have, the artificial intelligence learning we have, the ability to get uh, God's word from what we know of it, uh, the Greek and the Hebrew text, into other languages is so much faster than it could have been years ago. Even um, just kind of uh, those processes of translation happen faster because of technology today. Um, you think about 20 years ago, um, the gospel going to places uh, through radio and through uh, newspaper or other printed processes uh, made things really easy uh, because all of a sudden you could take a recording of the Bible versus a written version of the Bible into a place and play it and people can hear it for the first time in their own tongue. Um, that's pretty cool. That's technology. And so let's look really fast though before we get into a little bit more uh, technology kind of conversation. Let's look at um, a few other ways that the gospel goes into these restricted access places. Um, so one way that the gospel goes into restricted access places is through um, students. Students who have come from restricted access countries to places like the University of Arkansas, hear the gospel, believe it, and take it back to their native countries. Right? That's one way. Similarly, um, like our friend Miles, uh, we often are able to send teachers into those countries to teach things that are needed within those countries uh, that have some sort of demand. In this case, in, in Miles's case, uh, like English is a pretty big demand around the world in general because it's a, uh, a language of business um, or business language. It's used a ton and people need to learn it. Uh, and so teaching English simply can be a great platform for access to these sorts of countries. Um, 
outside of just um, language or teaching, whatever those things might be, uh, business is a great platform for doing work. <coughs> Gaddy and I have friends. Uh, our comp the company we work for supports uh, workers in countries who are facilitating business. And so um, that's a great way to not only get into a country, but also to connect with the people that you're doing work with. Um, you can employ people and influence them day in and day out um, intentionally, right? Um, the, another way is for Christian students from the U.S. or from wherever, right? So you could be a Christian student from China and, and go to England and take the gospel with you and vice versa. Um, it didn't just have to be American uh, students from the U.S. taking the gospel wherever they go study, although that is a part of it. Um, you can take the gospel with you as you go on your travels as a tourist. Now, there's all kinds of ways that we can consider this. Um, the gospel, uh, ironically, goes through literature. One of the best contacts I had when we worked in India, he approached me to ask me about the Da Vinci Code. I don't, I don't think the Da Vinci Code is explicitly the gospel, sure but it made him want to ask questions about Jesus. That's awesome. And so God used that literature to take the gospel to this kid crazy. Um, other ways is, and this is kind of a sadder version of this, but a lot of times workers from lesser countries, I'm putting in quotations because I don't know how you can measure that, but workers, specifically like wage workers from lesser countries, get imported to other countries to work, uh, and they themselves may be Christian, working for families who are uh, paying for them to do things like to keep their house, or to cook, or to drive, or those sorts of things. Um, but they themselves can take the gospel uh, places. Uh, we already mentioned Christian radio and television broadcasting as, as an option. But if you look at the world today, social media is another great technology that can be used for the gospel. Um, in fact, my brother-in-law um, does media uh, for the International Mission Board. And like recently, they went to the, the uh, was it the Polish border of Ukraine. And just watched people come across the border and saw what they did. And one thing that they did was they crossed the border, dug through their bag, got their phone, and started checking on things from back home. And just realized, how do we help serve these people here, and where's, where's the, what's the easiest way to connect? And so they started serving them ads through Facebook to say, hey, if you need help, click here, basically. Their call to action was, if you're needing... <coughs> Housing, clothing, food, transportation, if you're needing help connecting with your family, whatever it is, we can help you. And they partner with local church uh, there in Poland to, to serve those people. Uh, and they were connecting with them through ads. Pretty interesting way to do work. Um, several years ago, um, oh, why can't I remember the name? Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a, a missionary group who was serving ads to, in trying to engage with people in China. And they could only connect with the Uyghur people. As you guys know, the Uyghur people are very oppressed people of, of China, and they themselves are kind of illiterate. And so they stumbled across this way to connect with them, and were ultimately able to get those Uyghur people who were interested in the gospel connected with uh, folks who spoke their language and could share the gospel with them. Uh, they were basically taking an intent, right? So an ad is placed, and when you... When someone clicks on an ad, it's saying, hey, I'm interested in this thing. So let's put this through the lens of a Dyson vacuum. Gaddy wants to buy a Dyson vacuum for his wife for Mother's Day. And so he starts searching Dyson vacuum. The next thing you know, he starts getting ads 
Servant hymns are for Dyson vacuums. And so, um, right? It never stops. Um, but when he clicked, because he clicked on that, they know his intent is to buy. Or because he searched, he knows his intent was to buy. And so social media and ads can be used similar ways. If I can serve an ad that says, you know, ever been curious about what Jesus says about this topic? Folks who click on it have interest. And so then you can engage with those people. Um, and I can say, thank you. I can say that uh, there are missions organizations all around, see, all around the world who are uh, using this in really creative ways to get people face-to-face uh, with native-speaking believers uh, to share the gospel for folks who really want to know. Um, it's pretty cool. And so I also know that like uh, the Billy Graham Evangelical Association does this thing where they have, uh, what do they call them, uh, digital strategists or something, it doesn't matter uh, what they're called, but they use them to help kind of qualify folks and then connect them with missionaries or churches or different things. It's pretty cool what they're able to do uh, just through technology. Um, point of that, though, is <clears throat> that uh, there are many means of the gospel getting to restricted access countries, and there's many ways for us to be involved. Um, and I think the ultimate conclusion is um, is kind of this question that says, I think a realization around how close to the gospel are these places really? Um, are they really unreachable? And I think the answer is no. There's all kinds of ways that the gospel goes, uh, and it has for a really long time. Uh, and the cool thing is, is we can be involved with that. So, um, speaking of which, let's ha- let's <coughs> if you guys have time, yeah. I want to pull up Miles' newsletter real fast, and then we can pray for him. Um, let's see how he's doing work. Oh, it's still 